quoting from a famous song in the early 90s by Calloway. You see, I want money, lots and lots of money. I want to be rich. Oh, oh, I want to be rich. And one from, one from the 70s by Abba. Money, 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 always sunny in the rich man's world. Or this one from the 50s by Barrett Strong. Money, that's what I want. Lots of money, that's what I want. Whole lot of money, that's what I want. All I want. It's not like our culture has gotten any wiser since the 50s or the 70s or the 90s. Take most of the hip-hop songs of the last 30 years and plenty other popular songs from country music to rock music to pop music. This is the yearning felt through so much of our culture. Oh, to be rich. And we can all understand this. Money can make life easier and in some ways more enjoyable. Money opens many doors, but not all doors. There are some things that money can't buy. And not only that, there is at least one door that the possession of money actually seems to seal shut. Sadly, there is no other door that we need to be opened more than this one. I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 10, verse 17. You can find it on page 46 in the second half of the Pew Bible. I'm going to begin by reading the first seven verses. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord to you. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the man said to Jesus, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Father, what is impossible for us is possible for you. And so we pray for you to unplug our stopped up ears, to open our closed eyes, to soften our hard hearts, that we may put to death any idolatrous desires that are preventing us from fully following Christ. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Notice how our passage begins. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, that is the journey that Jesus began in the middle of the previous chapter. As Jesus set out from Galilee in the north for his final pilgrimage down to Jerusalem in the south in order to die. And a rich young ruler ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now it's not until verse 22 that we discover that the man was rich. 
And it's only in Matthew's account, recorded in Matthew 19, that we discover that the man was young. It's a term used to designate anyone between the ages of 20 and 40. He's a young, rich man. And then in Luke's account, in Luke 18, we discover the man was a ruler of some kind. Now, based on the man's seemingly genuine concern about eternal life and about obeying the commandments of the law of Moses, it's often presumed that he was either a ruler of a synagogue, like like Jairus that we saw in chapter 5, or that this young man was a, a ruler in the Sanhedrin, a religious group of authorities of Israel composed of both Pharisees and Sadducees with with formal judicial powers. But we can't be certain what kind of ruler this rich young ruler was. Unlike the Pharisees, who came up to Jesus in verse 2 of our chapter in order to test Jesus, trying to lay a trap for him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The question asked by this man, this rich man, appears to be genuine. After all, there's no indication in any of the three gospel records that the man was trying to entrap or to otherwise challenge Jesus, which we've seen repeated from the religious authorities thus far. The man kneels before Jesus. The man addresses Jesus with an astonishing degree of respect by calling him good teacher. And finally, Jesus looked upon him with love in verse 21, something never said about Jesus as he rebukes the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees. The man seems to be genuine. Notice the man's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus literally just answered that. Now, this man doesn't know that, but, but the reader does. The readers of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all know that because in all three of those gospel records, Jesus declares in the immediately preceding verses, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Kingdom of God is to be received as a gift, not earned, not merited. And so we see that the man starts off on the completely wrong foot, asking, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. Matthew's record in Matthew 19 makes it even more explicit. The man says, what good deeds must I do to have eternal life? He's assuming, as as all humans wrongly do, that eternal life can and must be earned. This man, like the rest of us, has far too high a view of himself and far too low a view of God's standard for holiness, and thus far too low a view of God. By addressing Jesus as good, which of course is true, Jesus alone perfectly is good, but but this guy doesn't know that. By addressing him as good, the man ends up showing that he has far too casual an understanding of what constitutes good. At that time, in, in those Jewish religious circles, it was very unusual to apply the term good to anyone other to God. Jesus said to the man, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, the, the reader of the Gospels understands something that the man doesn't. Jesus is good because Jesus is God. But I don't think Jesus says this to the man merely for, for our benefit as the reader or, or for the purpose of trying to get the man to understand who Jesus really is. God in human flesh. But, but rather, I think Jesus says this to the man for the purpose of getting the man to, to begin to think about what makes someone good. 
Because as we'll see, the man thinks that he himself is good. But by what standard? By what standard is he good? Only God's assessment of what it means to be good matters. And where do we find God's objective, unbiased assessment of goodness? In his word. In his moral law. It's against that standard that we will all be judged. And so it's to God's law that Jesus turns. Specifically, to what is referred to as the second table of the Ten Commandments. Remember, there was written on two different tablets. The, the second table of the Ten Commandments is a term used to refer to commandments five through ten, all dealing with love of neighbor. Interestingly, Jesus places number five, honor your father and mother, at the end of the list, out of order, thus drawing attention to it, perhaps for the sake of emphasizing its importance. He says this in verse 19, You know the commandments. Do not murder. It's number six. Do not commit adultery. Number seven. Do not steal. That's number eight. Do not bear false witness, meaning don't lie. That's number nine. Do not defraud. Now, defrauding is certainly related to lying, to bearing false witness, and thus it's an application of commandment number nine, but, but defrauding is equally an application but the one that we're expecting Jesus to say at this point, commandment number 10, do not covet. Do not lust after what others have. Defrauding someone is, is, is acting upon the, the greedy, covetous desire to take what belongs to another. But unlike the other commandments on the second table of the law, number 10, do not covet, is the only one that makes it explicit that God is as concerned with the intentions of the heart as he is with whether you act on those intentions outwardly. So it's interesting, but by substituting the, the outward action of defrauding in place of the inward action of coveting, Jesus seems to be testing the man to see if the man understands that it's more about the heart than about outward actions. Jesus is making it easier for the man to claim obedience. When the truth is, as Jesus spells out in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, we have all violated the spirit of the sixth commandment, do not murder. We've violated it by becoming angry with others in our hearts. We've all violated the spirit of the, the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. We've violated it by, by looking at others with lustful intent. We have all certainly violated the spirit of do not covet what you do not have. And then, of course, there are the first four commandments that Jesus skipped over entirely. The ones that Jesus summarizes in, in Matthew 22 as, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You shall have no other gods. You shall worship nothing but God alone. You shall love nothing more than you love Him. So does the man pass the test? Does he, does he point out the commandments that Jesus skipped? Does he point out the sinful heart that all the commandments are designed to expose? No, he doesn't. The man said to Jesus, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. There's no reason to doubt his sincerity. He probably has outwardly kept all six of these commandments, but that does not mean that he is good. It certainly doesn't merit him eternal life. 21, Jesus looking at him 
loved him. Jesus loved this man. Jesus encounters many self-righteous people throughout the four Gospels. Or as it's put in Luke 18.9, those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And it's against these people, these self-righteous people, trusting in themselves for their righteousness, that we hear Jesus' harshest rebukes. But not here. Something different is going on here. Jesus looks upon this man and loves him. When we talk about why it's so spiritually dangerous to be rich, we'll often focus merely on the way that riches can cause you to lose sight of your dependence upon God. Like Moses warned in Deuteronomy chapter 8, which Louise read earlier. And like we see in the parable of the rich fool that Jesus told in Luke chapter 12, where the rich man says to his soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This warning against trusting in riches rather than trusting in the giver of those riches certainly, it certainly flows from the immediately preceding passage in Mark chapter 10 where we are called to receive the kingdom of God like a child, trusting in God alone. And as with any rich person, there's likely a measure of this self-righteous, misplaced confidence here in this man. But I don't see that as the primary emphasis in this encounter. This man came to Jesus. This man knelt before Jesus. This man asked what more he needed to do to secure eternal life. The man knew that he was lacking something. And looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The man's issue was not the self-righteousness that flows from having money. The man's issue was the enslaving love of that money. This is part of the great reversal, the great reversal when assets become liabilities. With respect to entering the kingdom of God, that which is viewed as an unquestionable benefit in this life actually becomes a barrier to entering the next, a hindrance rather than a help. Now, this passage can be easily twisted to say that God requires all of his people to dispossess themselves of all their possessions, but of course, that's it's not true. In Luke's account of this exchange in Luke chapter 18, it's quickly followed by the exchange of Jesus with another rich man named Zacchaeus, who upon encountering Jesus only gives away half of his possessions, not all of them, and he is celebrated by Jesus for having done so. And then there are, there are several seemingly wealthy converts in the early church who rather than selling their homes, use their homes as the first church buildings. There's Lydia in Acts chapter 16. There's Philemon in Philemon verse 2. There's Prisca and Aquila in Romans 16 verse 3. People using their possessions for the advance of the kingdom, not selling all of them to give to the poor. 
And then there's Paul's explicit instructions to wealthy Christians in, in 1 Timothy 6 to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Nothing about selling everything. You see, wealth is not inherently sinful. It's not that the money is the root of all evil, but that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. 1 Timothy 6.10 Jesus' command to this man is not necessarily the same command he is giving to you and to me. What repentance looks like for any two people may differ. Repentance always requires turning from sin, but the means necessary to, to break a particular sin, the hold of a particular sin on a person's heart, may differ from one person to the next. So Jesus speaks to this man's heart. Even so, the, the words of one commentator are particularly probing. Gundry writes this, the fact that Jesus did not command all of his followers to sell all of their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. Catch that? That Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. You must be willing to let go of all to follow him. So take heed if you feel relieved that this is not a command for you. Have you ever discovered that you had a bruise or a sore muscle that you didn't know you had until someone walked up behind you and put their arm around you just the wrong way, inadvertently putting their finger right on the wound that you didn't know you had? Well, Jesus is intentionally putting his finger on this man's most life-threatening mortal wound, which he didn't even know was there. What is it for you? What are you not willing to give up in order to fully worship and serve Jesus alone? Maybe it's money for you too, like it was for this man. Not just the pleasures that money affords, but, but the power and the prestige, the prominence. You see, even the rich person's identity who they understand themselves to be as a person is often wrapped up in the possessions of wealth. That's why when you see these, these stock market crashes or people being caught for fraud, they throw themselves from 12-story buildings. They cannot be rich. They do not know who they are. Or maybe it's not money for you, but, but some other aspect of your identity something that is core to who you view yourself to be as a person, but that is at odds with God's law given to you, like his law regarding immoral sexual practices or orientations. For this man, it was riches. For others, Jesus encountered, it was their conception of what it meant to be a Jew or a Pharisee. Maybe for you, it's, it's some religious identity some group loyalty that is hindering how God is calling you to live for Him in this season of life? What is Jesus putting His finger on in your life? What are you not willing to walk away from in order for Christ to reign supreme over your heart? As Jesus puts His finger on the issue in your life, as He, as he presses down in this moment and you feel the sting, how are you going to respond? 
Are you going to walk away from this moment disheartened and sorrowful? Or are you going to find your joy in following Him? Notice that that Jesus lets this man walk away in this disheartened and sorrowful state. Jesus did not come to make us feel good about ourselves. That was not the aim of His ministry. And thus it must not be the aim of our ministries. Despite what our godless society says about what love demands, namely unqualified affirmation and acceptance, we do not see that here. It would have been unloving for Jesus to affirm this man's inherent goodness and his acceptability before God, just as he was. That kind of affirmation is antithetical to love because love speaks truth. And the truth is that none of us are acceptable before God just as we are. We must receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ through faith. And when true faith is exercised, there will also be repentance. The call of the kingdom is the call to repent and believe the gospel. And yes, it is the repentance part that prevents many from responding to the gospel. But but to rid the gospel of its call for repentance is to rid the gospel of its saving power. As the rich man turns his back on Jesus, the only Savior, we read this in verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's a picture of the the largest commonly known animal just walking through the, the smallest commonly known opening. It can't be done. A rich person cannot walk through the doors of the kingdom any more than a camel can walk through the eye of a needle. Verse 26, And the disciples were exceedingly astonished. They went from being amazed to being exceedingly astonished. And they said to Jesus, Then who can be saved? You see, the rich, with with all of their advantages in life, freed from so many of the anxieties and the troubles faced by the poor, enabled by their wealth to do so much good for others and to contribute so much to the work of the kingdom on earth through their giving, if even they cannot achieve the righteousness that God requires, then who can? Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. This is part of the great reversal when the impossible is made possible. But what is Jesus saying is impossible apart from the supernatural work of God? Many commentators and preachers often focus exclusively on our inability to do anything to merit salvation, our inability to to achieve the righteousness that God requires. And that's certainly true. And that certainly flows from the teaching in the, in the preceding passage about the need to receive the kingdom of God like a child, in complete dependence upon God's mercy and grace, not relying on ourselves in the least. But again, 
The emphasis of this passage has not primarily been about the man's self-righteousness, but about the man's enslavement to sin. Jesus is not focusing so much upon the man's inability to do anything to merit salvation as upon the man's inability to turn from his sin and to receive the free gift of salvation because of his enslaved heart. This is the only example in Mark's gospel when Jesus calls an individual to follow me and that person refuses, making it the saddest verse In the gospel, when Jesus commands demons, they obey. When Jesus commands winds and waves, they obey. When he commands the dead to rise, they obey. When he commanded the 12 disciples to leave their former lives behind and and to literally follow him around Israel and beyond, they obeyed. But this rich man refuses. That is how powerful a grip the love of money can exert upon a person's heart. And it's no less true of any other idolatrous desire we may have, whether it be for money or or pleasure or power or prestige. We have all experienced the enslaving power of sin, sealing shut the door to repentance and faith. But God can make the impossible possible. God can change the heart of the rich man. He did it for Zacchaeus just a few verses later in Luke's gospel. God can change the heart of any who find themselves unwilling to turn and follow Jesus. But upon discovering, as this man did, that that we are are far worse off than we ever imagined, upon discovering that, that we are farther from God than we ever dare dream, that we are enslaved to a ruthless master from whom we cannot break free, rather than walking away disheartened and sorrowful, we must prostrate ourselves before Jesus, pleading to be set free, crying out with the man in the previous chapter, I believe Help my unbelief. Crying out with the leper in the first chapter, if you will, Jesus, you can make me clean. And then the impossible will be made possible. You will be empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to repent and believe. Verse 28. Peter began to say to Jesus, See, we have left everything and followed you. They had literally walked away from their businesses and their families. We see them leaving their boats behind, at least for certain stretches of time, in order to travel around with Jesus. But having heard what Jesus required of the rich man, namely selling all of his great possessions, Peter seems to be asking if he has done enough. Now, as much as as following Jesus had already cost these first disciples, it was going to cost them more as the persecution they faced intensified over time, leading to imprisonment, torture, and death for the sake of the gospel. For many people today, following Christ likewise requires literally giving up everything, being ostracized from your family and your community, putting yourself at the risk of being unable to provide for yourself, or worse, of violence and murder. Just ask the Christians in Tunisia. But Jesus here redirects Peter's attention from what he has and what he will give up 
to what he has gained. Verse 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. This is part of the great reversal when leaving is the path to receiving. Of course, the promise of eternal life is not worth comparing to anything we must give up in this life in order to follow Jesus. But, But amazingly, Jesus doesn't start there. He doesn't start with the gift of eternal life that dwarfs everything we may give up. He instead began by talking about receiving houses and family and lands now in this time with persecutions. What's he talking about? He's talking about receiving the church, receiving the blessings of a new covenant community on the earth, the family of faith whose bonds are tighter than blood. Now, maybe that doesn't sound like your experience of the church. If not, then maybe we need to reconsider Jesus' vision for local churches. Maybe we all need to, to more fully lean into being the church for one another, being family, being there for each other Sunday through Saturday, Spending time together, loving on one another, praying for one another and with one another daily, encouraging one another with the truths of God's word. Jesus then concludes this exchange with what sounds like a proverb, verse 31. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. What does he mean? Well, I see three possibilities. Either one, he's commenting on the great reversal seen in wealthy, unrepentant people being put last, that is being excluded from the kingdom, while, while poor, repentant people are put first, that's being included in the kingdom. It's quite a reversal in the world. Or two, in response to Peter's observation about these disciples having given up everything, he's saying, slow down there, Peter. Even one of you, who are following me now will fall away, namely Judas. And one of the greatest persecutors of the church in the first century, Saul of Tarsus, will repent and will become the church's greatest missionary. That is quite a reversal. Or by the first will be last and the last will be first, in response to Peter's observation, He's saying that there is no first and last, no rankings in the eternal kingdom. And that these first disciples called to be apostles will not have greater prominence in heaven than the thief on the cross who trusted in Christ with his last breath. This is definitely the point that Jesus is making when he repeats this proverb, first, last, last, first, in the parable that immediately follows this account in Matthew's gospel in Matthew 20. But regardless of what this proverb means here, we see that the kingdom is all about reversals. When assets become liabilities, when the impossible is made possible, when leaving is the path to receiving. And of course, 
all of the blessings of the kingdom are available to be received by us because of another great reversal. When the one who deserves to be first over all things made himself last. When God the Son became a man. When God the Son lived the life that we have failed to live. When he died the death that we deserve for our sins. When he rose from the grave so that all who receive him in utter dependence, like a child, will be granted eternal life in the age to come. That is a great reversal. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. In light of the enslaving power of sin, do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Grant us repentance and faith that we may live lives that honor you and bring you glory. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.